university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. I am Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers, and welcome to this very special season two holiday episode of the Deconstruction Workers. My guest today is Dr. Dan Yeswick. He is a professor of English and Communication at Wildwood College in Missouri. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks very much, Dr. Bell. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, I think this is going to be really fun. There's a a sort of a tradition in the podcasting community of holiday episodes, but the fun <laughs> the the fun of doing it on a show like this, which is sort of completely academically based, is we could actually talk about where Christmas comes from because Exactly. So exciting. I think most people have no idea why we do any of the things that we do at Christmas because when you <laughs> when you start putting the actual traditions together, they they make no sense at all. Yes, yes, that is very true. Uh, one of the great things about Christmas is that everyone looks forward to it, and everyone kind of knows how to play their roles, and everyone understands. You have your family tradition, you have your cultural tradition, the faith-based tradition, you have the commercial traditions, but people are always sort of like, gee, we have to have mistletoe, but I have no idea why. Or, you know, we have to make sure the star's on the Christmas tree, but, you know, we never really wonder about why. So there's a whole bunch of whys at Christmas time that are always fun to play with. So I think we should probably get started maybe with the historical parts, and then sure. those will sort of lead into some of the modern stuff. I think the most important thing that people should understand is that the historical man named Jesus, was <laughs> right. not born in December. So we no, should probably start no, with that. Probably not. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, there's a really great book on Christmas that follows that whole argument. It's called Christmas, A Candid History, it's Bruce David Forbes. And I've taught the book before, and I, I, it's very, very readable, and I highly recommend it. And he starts off with that very thing. It's like the uh, Christmas is largely considered to be a Christian holiday, and of course the, the birth of the Savior of Christian belief. And yet there's very little actual fact or history to back up anything that has to do with the Christmas myths, from from the baby in the manger, the crash, to the actual date. And Forbes says that Christmas is like a runaway snowball. It just keeps running down this hill and picking up more cultures and more traditions and more ideas as it goes along. Uh, and in fact, it's such a powerful and, and, and vast snowball that it picks up non-Christian and Jesus-based traditions as it goes. So it picks up Hanukkah, it picks up Kwanzaa, it picks up all this stuff, and Christmas trees and tinsel and everything else along the way. I always, when I teach the critical history of Christmas, I always look at it more as layers. It's layering. And as far as December 25th goes, the date is all about the solstice, the winter solstice. Right. Because so much of Christmas was used to explain or expand or evangelize Christianity to new cultures, new faiths, especially the pagan and the Druid and the Anglo-Saxon 
and, and that stuff. So they were very, very interested in their winter fertility rights. This makes a lot of sense because they were worried about survival at Christmas time. So they, it's always layers, always wrappings, more and more layers of, of tradition. So, of course, Christians are going to celebrate uh, a symbolic holiday for the birth of their savior. It was just very convenient that they would layer that over the um, winter solstice, which is you know December 21st or wherever it might be. And then there's also the um, Roman traditions of the winter festivals, which also got folded in. That may be the biggest sort of contributor to picking that particular date, because the winter mm-hmm. solstice is not the 25th, it's the 21st. And so when Rome... The the people of Rome used to, uh, one week before the solstice, there was this big festival mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. because the, the Roman god of agriculture was Saturn, and they used to celebrate Saturnalia, which is this Correct. week-long thing where they would postpone business, and they would walk around singing for money, and they would right. decorate their homes with pine branches and all this stuff, and it was this festival of agriculture and celebration, and it was the biggest celebration of the year. And the Roman soldiers used to celebrate Saturnalia, and then at the end of that week, many of the Roman soldiers worshipped Mithra, who was the sun god. And Mithra's birthday, the holiest day of the Roman year, was supposedly (laughs) December 25th. And so... When Christianity sweeps into Rome, it sort of absorbs Saturnalia. That is why there are 12 days of Christmas, because it absorbs Mm -hmm. Saturnalia. And then Mm -hmm. they move Jesus's birthday to Mithra's birthday in order to also absorb those traditions. Mm -hmm. That snowball or that layering just keeps coming, because also with the 12 days of Christmas is really kind of where the gift-giving starts, because once it's once Christianity has established itself in Rome, of course, the Romans are pushing it out into the Netherlands, Germanic tribes, and uh, Britain, and there they start picking up these Christian traditions of the 12 days of Christmas as well. So people have said, you know, the 12 days of Christmas is supposed to be from the apostles. That's not really true. It goes back to Mithra and Saturnalia. Um, but it all folds in on itself. Right. You know, I think the one thing the one thing to make sure of with, if you want to enjoy Christmas, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying Christmas. No, there really isn't. Christmas is great. Right. Yeah, it is. It's one of my favorite times of year is you just can't worry about authenticity. Don't worry about it. If you want to celebrate it as the birth of Jesus, go ahead. If you want to celebrate it for Saturn, go ahead. (laughs) If you want to do it just because there's special new toys that you want to play with, go ahead. The only thing that really stays the same is what you said. It's always a festival of plenty, of bounty, of harvest, and of really surviving the winter, right? Right. Of of, uh, the one way I, my students and I always deal with Christmas is it's when you bear it right down, if you want anything authentic about it at all, it's about warmth and light in the darkness and the cold and how you get that can be Christmas lights outside. It can be Christmas trees. It can be a Yule log. If you want to have, there are people that still celebrate Saturnalia uh, (laughs) and, um, and Festivus. There's a Festivus festival going on in St. Louis in a couple of days. Uh, so if, you, uh, if that makes it authentic to you or real, go, go right ahead. But it's really about how do we celebrate human community, human experience, human even generosity or charity or intimacy in the dark and the cold. That's a really good segue. You had mentioned something about you know, sort of Christmas trees and Yule logs, which is another mm-hmm. thing that Christmas goes in and takes as... right. Christianity pushes 
north into the yes. sort of Norse region. The Norse were celebrating their own festival holiday called Yule, where mm-hmm. you know fathers and sons would go out and chop down trees and bring them yes. inside to celebrate the winter solstice um, as sort of a reminder of life right. and of good fortune. And at the end of that festival, they would cut the trees and burn the logs as the Yule log. And that's sort of where we get that tradition as well. Yeah, and there are so many here come the layers and variations again. Like there are some versions of the Yule log where you bring the whole tree into the house and you burn a piece of it every day for 12 days. So once again, people think that's where the 12 days came from. <laughs> right. Um people say that it, you know, it's it's a very very Germanic thing that the contemporary Christmas tree that we have now was largely popularized in the US by the swath German immigrants that came came in the late 19th century. So the very idea of the Tannenbaum is very very Germanic. And then it's always interesting to me cuz I always my students are, you know, they're very interested in Christmas. Many of them have been raised with very, very faith-based households. So when they realize that, you know, that they're actually celebrating the birth of Christ with a pagan tree in their house, like when <laughs> right. you really are worshiping a tree, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you can use the tree as a conduit for whatever you want. And uh, some of them are very shocked by that. Like, you mean I've been bringing this this pagan thing that I've been taught is bad or wrong or inaccurate all my life, and I'm bringing it to the house? I said, yeah, but, you know, those Norse tribes, they're not going to mind. And I don't think <laughs> the Pope will mind. And I don't think right. anyone is going to mind that you're doing this. The, again, the main thing is you're celebrating what you believe in a, in a way that means something to you. And if you go home and tell your grandmother she has to take down her Christmas tree because it's pagan, you know, we're going to have a problem. <laughs> well, the early the early Christians understood that, which is why they started oh, yeah. putting yeah, their own exactly. traditions on it. For example, when they first started adopting this whole idea of bringing in the Christmas tree, they would decorate it with apples to right, yeah. symbolize the Garden of Eden, right? Which is why we still today put these round ornaments on the tree right. to sort right. of symbolize yeah. the Garden of Eden, which I think... If you're going to go in and take someone's stuff, making up your own stories to layer on top of it's not a bad idea. Right. And there's something in those contradictions and those appropriations that really is, for me, what makes Christmas so much fun. Because it's about tolerance and it's about adaptation. And it's about, well, we're going to buy a little bit of this and a little bit of that because we like each other. And we might not agree completely, but we're going to find some really fun areas again in the dark and the cold for us all to get together. And yeah, I, I, I you know, I've got Saturn and you've got Jesus, but you know, they can they can hang out together in the cold. And we can have some grog and get over it. You know, uh, there's there's this there's this blending that's really really exciting. The things that we do at Christmas and understanding that we don't know why we do what we do, I feel uh-huh. is the quintessential nature of <laughs> popular culture within any yes. within yes. any tradition yes. really yes. you know the things that yes. we talk about every two weeks on this show are our own sort of popular culture traditions that we have developed mm-hmm. within this mm-hmm. country within this culture Christmas is no different than that. The yes. way that we deal with Christmas, not religiously, but culturally, mm-hmm. that is popular culture. It, yes. it, it is, it is, it is it, the, yes. by its very nature, popular culture driven. 
Yes, it's really, it might even be the definitive example of popular culture because it's based in allegiance to certain beliefs and ideas and habits and rituals and myths, but it's also ridiculously commercial. It's also very, very media-based. Everyone waits for the Christmas episodes every year, right? The Christmas specials, the Christmas episodes. Christmas in the last century, of course, you know, special editions of newspapers and magazines and comic books and everything else. So there's something, it's very, very hyper-commercialized. It's also very, very hyper-faith-based, but it has all of this stuff swirling and churning around in it, the layers and the snowballs. And uh, most people don't worry too much about the backgrounds and the origins, but they, you know, they've been raised in it in various ways. So you mentioned uh, the Christmas ornaments earlier, and that's a perfect example because there might not be a Christmas theme or tradition that is more full of urban legends than the, the idea of the Christmas ornament. So some people, you know, they say, well, we go, yes, they used apples and they used candles. They used whatever they could to decorate. It was usually, again, it's a fertility sign. So it's a sign of of bounty, of harvest, of continuing on, of growth and life in the cold. But, you know, we get the things like the Christmas spider, the German Christmas spider, the supposed <laughs> German Christmas pickle. Uh, the spider is actually a legit Christmas story. We've yes. sort of confirmed that. It's a, yes. But the pickle is not. Everyone says that there was this German pickle that they put on the tree. They've traced it. So as far as I know, and there may be new research on the Christmas pickle. I'm not sure. But uh, as far as we know, it came from a department store that had a lot of Christmas fruits and vegetable ornaments and the pickles seemed to be popular. So people loved the pickle, and then they would develop these individual family traditions where the pickle was the first ornament put on the tree and the last ornament put on the tree. And the only thing, people say it's a German tradition. The only thing really German about it is the Christmas tree itself, the Tannenbaum came from German culture. So there's also, you know, there's the sort of X-rated versions where they talk about things that were put on the trees were obscene or fertility symbols. And if if you're in a Saturnalia or you're if you're a Druid, you're putting all kinds of life-based themes on trees. So there could be, it really doesn't matter what you're putting on your tree as long as you're putting something on there that's decorative and meaningful to you. You had mentioned the Christmas spider. I don't know that everybody knows the yes. story of the Christmas spider. So the way that I understand, let me tell you my version and then you sure. tell me if this is the version you know. So it's a tradition that is both Germanic and Slavic. The version I know comes from the Ukraine, uh-huh. which is, you know, there's this poor widow she can't afford to decorate the tree for her children. She goes to bed sad. She wakes up. She finds that this spider has decorated the tree with its webs. And the kids right. think that it's beautiful and the dew is hanging off of it and it looks really magical. Mm -hmm. And so now mm -hmm. their tradition is to hide a spider and a web ornament somewhere in the tree. And then it's good luck for whichever kid finds it. That's the, that's the version that I know. Yes, and that's probably the standard version that I think, uh, again, from Ukraine and from Germany. I never knew the part about the finding the spider and that it's good luck. That's interesting. There are some families that really, really have their very, very old Christmas spider that they put on the tree every year. That I do know. And that's also supposedly the origins of where tinsel comes from. Right? Oh. It's supposed to look like spider stuff. That totally makes sense. Yeah, no, to me, tinsel is really, again, kind of a byproduct of the post-World War II sort of let's make plastic pink trees and let's make a glittery tree or a, a reflective or re refractive tree that we have all these like changing lights for. It makes sense. It could be people used different baubles and different forms of shiny stuff uh, was sort of tinsel oriented. So that could be true. There's another version of the story where instead of a widow, it's a young couple or an old couple that can't afford any presents or don't have, don't have, they have this tree and that's all they have. And the spider does the same thing for them. It's usually the widow and the children, but there are lots of variations. It is interesting though, that, you know, for a festival that's supposed to celebrate, 
the birth of salvation and the, you know, the darkest night of winter and all this uh, and life and bounty and moving forward with, with, with all kinds of vivacious life and community that a spider is the symbol. So, you know, <laughs> right. the spider having, having an interact, it's kind of gross. It's a yucky predator, uh, <laughs> right. but we managed to take something as ugly and abject as the spider and turn it, turn it into this very powerful Christmas tradition. So interesting. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of traditions that are interesting or that sort of come out of nowhere and only make real sense from within that culture. Yes, yes, I think so. My favorite of those is the British tradition of the Christmas Eve ghost story, which is, I mean, no one in America tells ghost stories the night before Christmas. They just don't. Right. There'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories right, of Christmas is right. long, long ago. And yes. People always say, why are there yes. ghost stories at Christmas? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's always been this British tradition. I think it's less now, but uh, there would always be this idea of getting everyone together around the hearth of the fire and telling these stories, again, about the layers, about the generations before most of the traditional British ghost stories have to do with pagan or druidic uh, or even in some cases Roman creatures and monsters, lots of goblins, lots of elves. There's a whole subgenre of Christmas Eve ghost stories about monks and ghostly monks finding secrets in monasteries that were built over Roman ruins, and it goes on and on and on, and it's absolutely fascinating. My favorite Christmas book to read is actually a collection of ghost stories about monks, uh, which just has all these crazy Christmas adventures that aren't really what we do over here at all. <laughs> I think one of my favorite traditions is, do you know about the Catalonian, the Spanish tradition of the cagatillo? Uh, not really. No. Okay, so cag cagatillo is pretty awesome. So in, okay. in Catalonia, there is uh -huh. this tradition of cagatillo, which is a log, and they hollow it out, and they okay. pop it up on stick legs, and they paint it with a face. <laughs> and wow. every night, Starting in the beginning of December, usually sometime around the 8th, Cagatillo gets fed candy and nuts and stuff. And he gets covered really? with a blanket so okay. he doesn't catch All a cold. Right. And huh. then on Christmas, <laughs> kids take turns beating Cagatillo with a stick <laughs> and ordering him <laughs> to poop out the candy and the nuts. <laughs> and then when he's all finished, they take Cagatillo and they put him in the fireplace and the kids eat the treats and they watch him burn. And he's known as the pooping log. And I... I children would love this. I did not think that this was a real thing. And then I started uh -huh. Googling pictures of Cagatillo and it is 100% a real thing. Wow. Well, I am I am really grateful to learn something new because I had not heard this one before, and I thought I'd pretty pretty aware of some, most of the variations. I had thought that the the Eastern European Christmas carp was something, but this is even better. Tell the um, Christmas carp. It, it, Oh, well, that, well, that's, you know, there are many, many Christmas Eve traditions throughout Europe, especially in Eastern Europe, where uh, the meals are rooted around fish. There's the Italian meal of the fishes, and then in... Um, Many parts of Eastern Europe, the great Christmas feast has to do with the Christmas carp, which is this very, very large fish that they fill with all kinds of goodies. Uh, and I had a, f a friend uh, recently who married into a uh, Serbian family, and uh, he, he was – they weren't sure even after he'd married into the family they were going to let him sit down to the Christmas carp. And he didn't really fight that. He wasn't sure he wanted to sit down to the Christmas carp. But when he was finally invited in, he said it was much better than expected, and, and he really understood that he was part of the family when he would – share the, the best parts of the carp with him. So that's interesting. Wow. Um, but the 
pooping wad fits into something else we were talking about. So much of this is fantastic. Uh, it's 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 like a reverse Christmas diarrhea pinata kind of right, thing, right? Right. Um, which is wonderful. But you know, the idea of the Yule log, which used to be about I mean, there's certainly druidic worship there. But it's also just about keeping the home warm, right? The Yule log is closely tied to the hearth and when they're bringing the whole tree in, they're dividing it up over days, et cetera. That is interesting that because it's in the hearth, because it fuels the hearth, because it's tied to family and home and nurturing and survival, that it turns into often food, right? So there's the uh, French bouche de Noël, which is the Yule log cake, which they're very, very serious about, which is also a Christmas Eve thing in the 50s and 60s. And I remember seeing these when I was a kid. Uh, they were even in the early 70s. There were these Yule logs that had like really dangerous chemicals sprinkled on the top so that when you put them in the fire, they would like glow green or yellow or silver. And now I think they still have those, but I think the chemicals are safer. <laughs> um, so there's there's something about a log being more than just a log. It has to have magic to it. I mean, it has to have some sort of sorcery. Uh, and the idea of one that's actually defecating candy certainly has that same kind of idea that the log is, is both fuel and food, uh, magic, or a, uh, some kind of sweetness to it, which I think is really interesting. Wow. Cool. Yeah. You know, I think probably the most, at this point, the most famous and most universal of our European Christmas traditions has to be Santa Claus. We haven't even talked about Santa. Definitely. Definitely. You know. Uh, and yeah, and Santa is Santa, Santa is a personal favorite of mine just because some of the stories are so 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 loony. There are so many Santas, right? And there are right. so many Santas that have been commercialized so many ways. Again, the urban legends of Christmas go on forever. So there are some people who say, well, Santa was created by the Coca-Cola company because of Sunbloom's drawings or uh, designs of the Coca-Cola Santa. And in some ways, that is true. The sort of modern older patriarchal Santa with the big bushy beard. Uh, Sundblom certainly kind of invented that Santa. I don't know if we can say that Santa is owned by Coca-Cola or it's a Coca-Cola conspiracy or anything like that. They are beautiful, beautiful, vintage, classic illustrations. And he did make Santa non-elfish, right? Right. Although some people also credit Norman Walkwell, and some people credit Thomas Nast, who is right. the, the cartoonist the, for... Right, yeah, because his drawings went along with the uh, poem. Right, Clark Moore poem for right. The Night Before right. Christmas. So there right. are th- there's these three names that you always hear swirling yeah. around sort of the modern tradition of Santa Claus. Yeah, and that those are those are the one thing I will say that I think the the Moore poem and the Nast cartoons, the Norman Rockwell drawings or paintings, and the uh, Sunblum ads, they definitely all swirl together into what we think of the of as the American Santa Claus. There is no question there. That's kind of where it all starts. And none of them have anything to do with no. Saint Nicholas, <laughs> the Turkish bishop, Correct. from the fourth century. None of them have anything to do with that at all. Correct. And then there's also, there's all the many, many European variations. There's Papa Noel. There's various versions even of St. Nicholas for St. Nicholas Day, which my wife's Hungarian, so she celebrates St. Nicholas Day, and she takes it almost more seriously than she does Christmas. So right. December 5th, everyone puts out their shoes. And, uh, you know, it's funny how the, the kids used to put out their little shoes or their slippers or whatever, and they get a few treats. And now they're looking for the biggest, most enormous boot they can find so that it'll be completely filled. <laughs> uh, so they've kind of learned an American version of excess in terms of St. Nicholas Day, but it's still a lot of fun. And that in Europe, 
many times, at least throughout history, Santa Claus is not only tied very closely to St. Nicholas, there's all kinds of St. Nicholas myths as well. Right. But also that Santa Claus has kind of the darker foiled. Oh, Santa doesn't come alone in Europe. Yeah, no, 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 no. Santa doesn't come alone. In the United States, he gets like these cheerful elves who build toys. Right, and right, in, right, in parts right. of Europe, Santa comes with some interesting with, folks. That's right. The best part for me for the St. Nicholas myth is that uh, there's even some debate as to whether or not St. Nicholas was the right St. Nicholas. There are some that probably never existed in parts of the myth. But the thing that Matt works there, and I think the thing that makes Santa Claus work, and that we can still draw a line all the way through Sunbloom and Rockwell and Clement Moore and Thomas Nast right to St. Nicholas, is St. Nicholas was known to have loved children, right? right? And he was always helping children, and there's myths about him giving gifts to children, and there's myths about him resurrecting children, right? Uh, and there's always there's myths about him beating back these demonic guys or these cannibals or these bad parents, or uh, he's, he was also supposed to be very wise, very judge-like, very understanding. But the fact that this very important holy person took a special interest in the welfare of children and gave them gifts and, and treated them well. That's really where the Santa thing kind of starts. There's this other patriarch out there who's doing God's will, who's bringing holy, happy, right. sacred joy to the world. That's the one line of Santa that stays the same. The legend of St. Nicholas that I enjoy the most, I think, of, mm -hmm. of that sort of traditional St. Nicholas is that St. Nicholas is in some way walking through a town or is doing the Lord's work in some town, and he hears mm -hmm. that this girl is going to be sold into slavery. So mm -hmm. he walks through the village, he finds the place where this is happening, he starts throwing gold coins through the open window <laughs> right, in order right, right, to right. pay for the slave to be released, the, the girl mm -hmm. to be released, mm -hmm. and all the mm -hmm. coins land in the laundry that's drying by the fire. And mm -hmm. so children start hanging stockings by the fireplace in hopes that St. Nicholas will throw coins into their stockings as well. And that's mm -hmm. so this whole idea of placing a shoe or placing a stocking or something by the fire, right. this is where that tradition gets its birth in this one, again, urban legend or myth or whatever we want to call it, you know, about St. Nicholas. Yeah. It's interesting. So many of the early stories have to do with money. Right. And, and St. Nicholas, and the fact that he's, you know, giving away his money for the good of other people and help, and there's salvation, there's liberty, there's, like I said, the famous story of the two boys who are chopped up by the butcher, and then he, in some versions of the story, he waves his hand, and they're, they're all put back together like nothing happened to them. There's all kinds of making things better by giving of yourself, which is interesting. But only if you're good. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll just assume those two boys were good. There's even a Hindi variation of the St. Nicholas myth, really? uh, which has been adapted as a British ghost story in a British collection called Ghost Stories of India, and it's called The Werewolf. And it's about a sort of a St. Nicholas-like werewolf figure who is also a Sikh. <laughs> uh, and the exact same story is sort of told that there's this terrible, terrible person who kills and eats people and then serves their body parts as a, as a butcher. And then it takes a St. Nicholas-like character to sort of save them. But there's nothing Christian about the story at all. There's nothing St. Nicholas about the story. It's just been folded into Hindi belief as well. It's really interesting. That is really interesting. And I think there is something about kindly old people who care for children that fits into all of that uh, all of those urges in the dark and the cold in the winter right. to ce celebrate humanity and celebrate community. I think it's really important to have that in there. But it is also this power and control 
Yes. Like most stories that get told, particularly to children, and particularly in the European tradition, mm-hmm. there is this idea of power and control as well, which is why you only get the stuff if you're a good kid. If yes. you're not yes. a good and kid... And if you are not, oh my heavens, there's some, right? <laughs> there's some great stories from across Europe about what happens if you're not a good kid, you know? Whether it's the Germanic, Austrian, Slovenian, Hungarian tradition of Krampus, which is the anti-Santa. Right, well, and the Krampus is an absolute horror, right? Right. He's a monster. He's got horns and salivating tongue, and he, he gets pleasure from torturing bad children. Right. If you're good, you get presents, and if you're bad... Krampus takes your presence and then you get bad things happen to you. Yeah, tortured. I mean, you are tortured. There are some versions where he carries you to hell. Right. There are some versions where he beats and whips you. And the, it's really interesting that in the early 21st century that we're in now, the Krampus has had kind of a revival. He's getting yes. a lot more attention than he ever did before. We've had a kind of a terrible movie, but that's not a surprise. There's a Krampus knock celebration here in St. Louis that has a couple hundred people. There's a Krampus uh, drinking society here that celebrates the Krampus every year. There's a Krampus Christmas card you can buy now to send to people. <laughs> <laughs> so the Krampus, he wasn't, wasn't really part of that early American Santa Claus myth, but he's coming up now and he's, he's, he's kind of coming on strong internationally. There's right. something about a Christmas monster that is very appealing to us now. There are Krampus parades uh, throughout Germany. They're, they're part of the Kostringelnacht uh, march, so that's, that happens as well. Uh, but the Krampus is hardly alone. There are other Christmas torturers too. Oh yeah. <laughs> In the Netherlands, you get Black Peter. There's a whole tradition around, depending on what part of the Netherlands you're in, but, you know, Santa travels with either Black Peter, who is in some parts of the legend kind of like the devil. In other parts of the legend, he is an actual black person, like a slave. Right. In some parts of the legend, there are actually multiple Black Peter. Like, Santa travels with six to eight black men who mm-hmm. are, mm-hmm. you know, either, wow. either his friends or his slaves or a gang. I don't know what they are. But there's a really great piece by David Sedaris where he goes uh-huh. through the tradition of six to eight black men. It's one of my favorite Christmas traditions in the world. Not the actual six to eight black men, but listening to David Sedaris right. talk about the six to right. eight black men is a thing I do every right. year on Christmas. It is one of my favorite right. traditions. Is that from uh, Holidays on Ice? It is. The words silly and unrealistic were redefined when I learned that St. Nicholas travels with what was consistently described as six to eight black men. <laughs> I asked several Dutch people to narrow it down, but none of them could give me an exact number. (laughs) It was always six to eight, which seems strange considering they've had hundreds of years to get a decent head count. (laughs) The six to eight black men were characterized as personal slaves until the mid-1950s when the political climate changed and it was decided that instead of being slaves, they were just good friends. Sometimes whether or not he's a slave or he's described as black, he's also often made into a monk, which is interesting. Right. Because then we, then we have that Protestant resistance to the finagling mendicant who's always causing trouble. Uh, so that kind of works its way. Or that the monks are not as holy or well-meaning or, you know, they're much more hypocritical and menacing and mischievous than they went on. And, and that also ties into the idea of children being terrified of being 
punished by you know monks. Well, sure, because if you're good, you get presents, but if you're bad, Black Peter right. stuffs you in a sack and beats you with a stick. Right, right. <laughs> so... Yeah, and, and that's about the nicest thing he does. So right. that's pretty good. In um, France, Black Peter is Pierre Foutard, the whipping father. And the, the other thing that's really interesting is the whipping father is often very dirty. He's filthy. He's covered in soot and coal. Maybe because he comes down the chimney, but probably just because he's kind of yucky, right? Right, and he kind of comes up to you, and he's all slimy and gross, and he's got his big switch, and Todd will whip you silly, whereas the good kids will get all kinds of goodies from Papa Noel. So, and there are versions of uh, Father Christmas and Saint Nicholas and Papa Noel where he carries a switch too. Really? So, so Santa Claus himself will beat you with a stick. Sometimes, yeah. Uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll see these pictures of him walking through the woods with his basket of toys, but then he has a little switch in his hand, too. Sometimes it's been sort of gentrified into a piece of holly, but sometimes it's definitely a switch. And you'll see there'll be this big pack of toys, and then in some of the early, early illustrations, you'll even see like, this little kid you know, stuck in the sack crying who's been taken away to <laughs> right. be eaten and then be brought back. So sometimes the two figures are actually conflated and brought together. So, and I've talked to a lot of students when we do our Christmas units in various classes who they tell me like Santa creeps them out when they were a kid, they were really scared. Like, sure. even though he brought them toys, like this guy who's a home invader who comes out here to <laughs> me, who watches you all the time. He sees you when you're sleeping. Yeah. Right, right, right. And then there's, there's, there's been a lot of that. So like, wait a minute, you know, in this world of, hypersensitivity to surveillance. Well, yeah, because now in the modern era, now he's got his snitches, right? I mean, yeah, right, he, right, he right, sends right. these elves yeah. to sit on your shelves in your house and snitch on you for, you know, being a bad kid, which is fine in America because in America, Black Peter doesn't show up to stuff you in a stack and beat you, so... It makes sense that we have kind of a secret fifth column going on <laughs> right. Uh, and again, like the elf on the shelf is the book and the elf. It's also been hyper commercialized. You can have like an oh, elf. Of course. You, there's like a whole elf family and elf pets and everything else. And every year they get a new outfit and. Yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. My students are very ambivalent about Santa. They're very ambivalent about the elf on the shelf because they're all younger and they, you know, they've grown up with it now. Right. Uh, and the other parents that I talk to are very ambivalent with too. Some parents love it because they can just get their kids to behave in like July. <laughs> like, look, the elf is still watching you. And some parents are like, I don't want my kid to grow up afraid of this elf, you know? So it's, it's very, very different. You know, in full disclosure, we did have an, uh, we've had an elf on a shelf. My daughter's yeah. grown out of it now, but you know, coming up, uh -huh. you know, she's had this elf on a shelf pretty much her whole childhood, but our elf is not a snitch. Like our, the elf on our shelf okay. every night for the Christmas season, our elf goes around the house and leaves little pieces of candy. And like, our, our elf is not a snitch. Our elf is getting you, our elf is Santa's hype man. Our elf has always been sort of getting you excited that Christmas is coming rather than, hey, you are bad and the elf is going rat you out. That, that's fabulous. So uh, knowing you, though, I have to ask, did you open the elf on the shelf or was it still in the <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you understand what Dan means here because I don't ever open it. I open zero things. My office is full of toys in boxes. My house is full of toys in boxes. I refuse to open anything. Now, our elf has been open from the beginning. We followed, okay, good. We okay, followed good. all the elf yeah. rules. Yeah, because it, it would be even more interesting if the elf was, was mint in box. Our elf is mint in sealed box. She just, her, her little box goes from different parts of the house and then you know she just cool. yeah, le right. leans next to things in her box 
So our our version of the Elf on the Shelf, we never had the Elf. We were having against the Elf. We just didn't get the Elf. Right. One year at Target, uh, they had these really cute colored reindeer. I mean, there was a green one and a red one and a blue one. And they were perfect for our for our kitchen window. So I, I bought the three of them for our kitchen window. And they just looked perfect. Like they were meant to be in that window. And the neighbors all liked them because the neighbors can see into our kitchen window. And they had a little girl. And we had – my son was about six and my daughter was about four. And she loved them so much that – she wanted them to be her elf on the shelf. So every night, magically, the reindeer would move around the house uh, and they would, they would show up in different places and then she would kind of find them and she'd tell one all the good things she'd done that day and she'd tell the other all the bad things she'd done and say that she was sorry. It was really sweet. She made up this whole mythology herself, this whole Christmas myth. Well, my daughter is now 10 years old and Santa is a thing of the past, but we still have to move those reindeer around. She still expects them to be somewhere else every morning <laughs> right. when she wakes up and she knows what's going on, but she has great fun doing it. So the other day she was at basketball practice. She came home and the three reindeer were shoved in our mailbox and she just thought that was great. So a couple of wrap up questions um, sure. before we get to our big wrap-up question but I, I, it's the holiday episode so we have to ask sort of what's your favorite holiday sure. what's your favorite holiday movie of course i can't give you an easy answer so i'm gonna go with two my my two favorite holiday viewing experiences one are you know i grew up as many of us did with the charlie brown christmas special uh and i am a i am a huge charlie brown fan i've written on charlie brown i charlie brown and, and, and charles schultz's characters are a huge part of my life uh and waiting for that christmas special growing up was always such a such an important thing for me but now of course we don't have to wait anymore we can watch it in july or august or right. june if we want to but sitting down with my kids and watching that together and seeing you know this thing was made in the 50s it set off you know the great explosion of animated christmas specials and it still works it's uh, the, the music is beautiful the animation is smart the dialogue is crisp and it covers so and i just love the kids voices it covers so many of the the benefits and the questions about Christmas. You know, Linus's speech when he sits there and actually tells the Christmas story is beautiful. Lucy wanting to be the Christmas queen is beautiful. Charlie Brown's sad-ass little tree is beautiful, right? So I still, uh, I enjoy it and I enjoy watching it with my kids now. And they still, no matter what they're doing, no matter how tweeny my son is being, he still stops and sits down and watches the whole thing. Uh, so that's that's the one thing for me. Uh, and then my wife and I have a tradition of always watching uh Love Actually, which I think is one of the best adult adult Christmas movies there is. It is just so much fun. So those, uh, so I, you know, I'm and I'm I'm very fond of Christmas media. I do a whole section in various classes on it. I've always enjoyed It's a Wonderful Life. I love Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. I teach a Christmas Carol in three different classes. Uh, but I think my two favorites are probably the Charlie Brown Christmas Special and uh, Love Actually. There's also a great line. In uh, my favorite TV show ever is uh, Northern Exposure, uh, and there's an episode where Shelley is uh, super depressed because she's not home for Christmas. She's she's Canadian, and she looks at one of the other characters and says, "It's just not going to be a good old fashioned Charlie Brown Christmas anymore." And I just can't imagine not having a good old fashioned Charlie Brown Christmas. So nice. I'm kind of like you. I think I have two as well. Okay. Until my daughter. Until we had my daughter. I mean, for me, Christmas is not Christmas until. You know, I watch the animated How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That is my yes, that's my Christmas is, go to. Magnificent. Thurl Ravenscroft is the voice of Christmas for me. That mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, the voice of Tony the Tiger. That is my that's my Christmas go to. But our realistic tradition now, and the one that I look forward to all year long, is 
you know, the, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, we put up the tree, we put up all the Christmas uh-huh. stuff in the house, and then uh-huh. we make hot chocolate, and we get cookies, and we watch Elf. And Elf is really uh, my, that is Elf my is Christmas Elf movie. Is a lot of fun. That is my Christmas okay. movie now. So I have to tell you, because this is just a fantastic story. Elf is great. I love Elf to death. My daughter's best friend is named Jovi. Oh, really? Because of Elf. That's because awesome. Because of Elf, yeah. She's the youngest of three kids. And just a really wonderful, fun family. And uh, this girl was kind of a surprise. And they just said, you know, we just love this film and we love this character. And she's one of the happiest, funniest kids I've ever met. So, yes, there is an actual Joby out there. Well, that makes me really happy. So, good. (laughs) (laughs) So, what what is your Christmas song? Oh, boy. (laughs) You need a whole other podcast. Well, sure. My Christmas song. Okay. Well, first of all, I'm going to preface this by saying that if you don't enjoy uh, Baby, It's Cold Outside, there's something deeply wrong with you. (laughs) It It is a truly great song, and it's actually a song about empowerment, but we'll take that for another time. My favorite Christmas song is the Bare Naked Ladies Sarah McLaughlin. Uh, God, God rest you, married gentlemen. We are in the exact same yes. place. That is also my Christmas yes. song. It is a fun rhythmic jam. It does all the great bare naked lady stuff, but every note Sarah McLaughlin sings in that song is to die for. It is just transcendent. Plus, it's a Stephen Page bare naked ladies. Yeah. It's not a. It's not a no Stephen Page bare naked ladies, which is exponentially better. Yes, and I am. I am completely with you. But the way her voice sneaks into that song, you just hear a couple of her. Just in the in the chorus before she finally comes in. spent a lot of time writing and teaching about music so I'm, I'm sort of past all the gives me goosebumps and things like that but when she sings uh the, that solo bit in the middle of that song it doesn't matter how many times i hear it i could hear it 25 times a day i still get goosebumps yeah. there's something really fun about the way she does notes and about them backing her up so that's that's probably my favorite uh i'm also very fond of eartha kip santa baby because if you're not something's wrong you You and i are you and i are very much in alignment here i also really dig santa baby except the version that i really like is michael buble's version where he takes it and he turns it into like a a slightly drunk frat boy version (laughs) which is really really fun he changes some of the words and it completely yeah. changes the sentiment. So instead of it being sort of this 1950s mm-hmm. gold digging woman kind of a thing, it's just this bro dude who's trying to schmooze wow. Santa. And it's really, wow. really good. So if you haven't heard that version, you should wow. check it out. Santa Poppy forgot to mention one little thing. Cha-ching. No, I don't mean as alone. Santa Buddy. So head down the chimney tonight. I also have to put in a shout out for my kid's favorite Christmas album. Someone gave us this years ago, and I think we went years without playing it. And then we started playing it in the car, and now it is it is so close to our family. I don't think we could live without it. The Phineas and Ferb Christmas album oh, nice. is one of the greatest Christmas statements ever. 
the Phineas and Ferb versions of the 12 Days of Christmas with Doofenshmirtz singing is absolutely one of the funniest things I have ever experienced in my life. And the Phineas and Ferb version of Good King Wenceslas is mind-splittingly hilarious. So uh, if you've never heard them, you can hear them on Spotify. They are magnificent. You gave me one and I gave you one, so that's good. We got yeah, some, we have yeah, some new Christmas yeah, stuff. Great. That is fantastic. My own daughter is torturing us this week with the Miranda Sings Christmas album. Oh, God. So, oh, dear. Okay. <laughs> for, for years, my son tortured us with the annoying orange Christmas songs oh, nice. that we had to have on all the playlists. Yeah. And just this year, finally, they came up on the playlist. He's like, will you please take those off? Those are horrible. I'm like, for years, this was your fault. You did this stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we finally got to take those, which is the last thing, really. Christmas music is so interesting because there's great Christmas music that, that you just take straight and conventionally as being so full of love and faith and charity and all that. And then there's really great Christmas music that's terrible, right? That you just enjoy because it's so bad. Like, or And then there's anti-Christmas music like The Pope's Fairy Tale of New York or The King's Father Christmas, uh, which is another one of my favorites. Father Christmas is great. And anything that is that sacred and that mellifluous and that munificent and all about generosity and charity. It also needs a little bit of ski, a little bit of deconstruction, right? right? I think that's part of the fun. Well, and that's, you know, that's why I love the white winter hymnal so much. I don't know if mm, you've heard White okay. Winter Hymnal. White Winter Hymnal is yes. great because it's it's a song that's not about Christmas, but it's a, it's it has a Christmas feel to it that gets played cool. a lot around Christmas time. And I always okay. think it's really funny. They're singing about decapitating snowmen and their heads falling in the uh-huh. snow and oh, all wow. this. And okay. and Sounds it's like it, yeah, so it's it's this got this sort of anti Christmas feel, but it gets played a lot around Christmas time. So. I was following the pack, all swallowed in their coats, with scars of red tied round their throats, to keep their little heads from falling in the snow. And I turn round, and there you go, and Michael, you would fall and turn the white snow red as strawberries in the summertime. That's the great thing about Christmas is the snowball or the layering; it can absorb it all. It just, it just can. And that's the great thing about it. And it, it just keeps growing and changing. You know, it just gets bigger and bigger. As we always do on this podcast, where we end up is Christmas traditions. So what? <laughs> what? Well, there's a, there's this, I'm going to start a little dark here and then I'm going to grow it into something beautiful. At least I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> there's this, there's this anxiety all year long about Christmas. In fact, there's the great song about it, right? Keep Christmas with you all through the year. Right. And there's this idea that, Every time you end a Christmas, you're always wondering, like, will everyone still be here for the next one? Will it be as good as this one? Will it be the same? And when you, if you go through a particularly difficult Christmas, well, next year will be better, right? It's the same kind of thing, you know, all the baseball fans say. Next year we'll do it. Next year. One of the greatest things about Christmas and the Christmas traditions and, and the so what is that even though you're living in the Christmas of this year, you're always looking forward to the next one. It's always about continuity and sustaining all the goodness and the generosity and the blessings that you've had and looking forward to the next one, which is kind of why Christmas Carol is like Christmas past, present, future, right? There's this sense of heritage and continuity and connection through the cycles of the year, through the turning of the earth that, you know, you're always wondering, will everything be okay next time around? We're going to assume so. We're going to push forward very idealistically and optimistically and look forward to the next celebration of light and the darkness and warmth and cold. Yeah, I think that's really great. 
I 100% agree. I think at the end of the day, we spend all year long worrying about Christmas and freaking out about Christmas Mm -hmm. and Christmas is going to be this or Christmas is going to be that. And then it's here. And for me, it's much like Lent as a recovering Catholic. It's the exact exact same feeling, which is I don't necessarily believe in all the stuff anymore, but it's a nice time to sit back and reflect on, I got it pretty good over here. Mm And I'm able to share that with other people and think about people who might not have it as good as I do. And I think that's a really important and positive thing to have at least a couple of times a year. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really beautifully put. I completely agree. All right. Well, thank you, Dan, for joining me today. This has been really fun and fantastic. Thank you, Chris. It was great fun. Loved it. Thank you, listeners, for hanging out with us on this special holiday edition of the Deconstruction Workers. We will be back with the official season premiere two weeks from now. So I really am excited for season two. I think we've got a lot of great things planned, and I'm excited for you to get to hear it. And happy holidays, everybody. Merry holidays. Happy Christmas to everyone. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.